Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We are studying verse by verse through Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 22 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's word that you brought, let's open those now to Luke chapter 22, verse 47 through 53. It's our text this morning. Now, last Sunday morning, we studied the familiar story of Jesus, his night of fervent prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located just outside of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem on the Mountain of Olives. Luke notes that retiring to the garden in the late evening was his custom while he was in Jerusalem. In other words, he was not hiding from anyone or anything that was about to happen. And Judas, being one of the 12 disciples, would have been in the company of Jesus on those previous occasions when he retired to the garden. And so he would know exactly where to find him. As we noted last week, Jesus spent those final moments before his arrest in what the scripture calls agony agonizing prayer, having asked his closest companions to pray that they not fall into temptation. When Jesus finished praying, he was altogether prepared for what lied before him. The disciples, on the other hand, slept when they should have been praying. And we will see this morning, they utterly failed the test that was before them. So let's read our text. Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. While he was speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading the way for them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was happening, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Well, the scripture says, while he was speaking. Remember, he was in a conversation with the disciples, really, rebuking them for the fact that they could not stay awake. He said in another one of the gospels, even an hour to pray. And he was in the midst of telling them to pray lest they fall into temptation because he knew that a trial and a testing was already on its way. The scripture says, while he was speaking, the crowd came. Well, you can put an equal sign between the word crowd and the word mob. In fact, I've titled this message today, the Messiah and the mob, because it was a mob. We're told that Judas was preceding them, that he was leading the way. We know from the other gospels that they had torches, they had clubs, they had swords. Um, You have a number of groups of people represented here. Here in Luke, he talks about the chief priest. He talks about the temple guard. Temple guard were, were those who were charged with keeping order in and around the temple. Now they would have had clubs because they were not allowed to carry more lethal weapons because remember Jewish Law did not allow them while they were under the Roman uh, government to have um, capital punishment. And so they had to go through the Romans to do that. So apparently they had enlisted 
the local Roman cohort, we're told, a cohort consists, by the way, of 600 people. And so you put all the Roman soldiers together with the temple guard and the chief priest and all the others that tagged along, you might be talking as many as a thousand people. I think that qualifies as a mob. And so they came out in the middle of the night as if they were looking for a wanted criminal, a, a desperado, if you will. And so there are several ironies in this story that have been noted through the years. And I'm going to point out three or four of them to you. Uh, the first irony is that though, though there's a thousand men came out to arrest the person we know as the Prince of Peace, the one that never did harm to anyone. They're treating him as if he was uh, a murderer. Second irony is that they came under cover of darkness to seek the light of the world. And Jesus pointed that out to them that he had taught publicly every day in the temple and they never tried to arrest him. Of course, we know why. They feared the people. Jesus was still very popular among the common people and uh, they knew to take him publicly uh, would be to incite a riot. And so they were cowards. We know by reading the other gospel accounts of this evening that Judas had received 30 pieces of silver for leading them to Jesus that evening. Another irony is that this bribe was paid by the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish judicial branch that was charged with upholding justice. And here they were perpetuating probably the greatest injustice in the history of humanity. So I want us to say a number of things as we walk through this text today. The first thing is the traitor's kiss. The traitor, of course, being Judas, verse 47 while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was leading the way for them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. I mentioned two weeks ago in our sermon that none of the other disciples, I believe, suspected Judas as the traitor. There would be nothing in his appearance or demeanor that would suggest it. His name was a common one. Now, when we, heard, we hear the name Judas today, we, we cringe. I hope no mother would name their son Judas today because of the connotations here. But in that day, it was a very common name. In fact, there was another one of the 12, we're told, who was also named Judas. And he's often differentiated, so he's not lumped in with Judas Iscariot. The name Judas Iscariot would have not drawn any attention. It just means Judas of Kerioth, which was a, a village in that part of the world. Probably the greatest evidence that no one suspected him was that he was elected treasurer. He was entrusted with the common purse that met the basic needs of the disciples as they traveled. Uh, he experienced the same things all of the others did. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. So what was his motive? Well, we know it was at least partially greed. That's why he wanted to be treasurer, we're told, that he was a pilferer. He, he stole from it, but they didn't know that until after the fact. In fact, he gave a little hint of the greed in his heart is that he would complain when Jesus showed generosity to others. Now, there are a lot of apologists for Judas out there, believe it or not. Many books have been written trying to say that Judas was a guy that had a good heart, that he was really a, a true Christian. Some say that Judas was motivated because he was disappointed that Jesus had not ushered in this earthly kingdom that all the others were looking for. And so he was going to give Jesus a little boost and a little help to get things going. In fact, there are some that claim that Judas was closer to Jesus than the others, than that only he knew the true plan and that he and Jesus worked together to bring about this evening. The scripture tells a different story. 
Scripture says he was filled with Satan. Judas is universally rebuked in the Scripture as a betrayer. He had apparently prearranged that he would go before the mob and identify Jesus with a kiss. And in that ancient way of kissing, they would grab the teacher by the shoulders and bring them to his bosom. And of course, the fear the Romans had is that he would try to escape or, or that one of the disciples maybe would try to impersonate Jesus so that he could be secreted away. And so Judas was working in, in cahoots with um, the Romans and Sanhedrin. And, and so this prearranged sign would be that he would kiss his master, which was not unusual at all in those days for a student to kiss the master. But this kiss is particularly obscene because a kiss universally is a gesture of love and respect and honor and certainly was in that culture. And Jesus, Judas in one moment turned a kiss into an act of treason and treachery. I think it's something very important to point out here and that is that Jesus was not taken by surprise. Some of the other gospels point out that he actually walked out to meet the crowd. Um, Jesus said, have you come out to betray the son of man with a kiss? He looked him right in the eye, knowing his heart. Are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Now this title, son of man, was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. We first saw it, remember last summer in the book of Daniel. And Daniel had that vision of this final kingdom that would reign on earth and Jesus he did not know him by name, but knew that the Messiah is the Son of Man. That is, he identified very closely with humanity. He was the Savior of Israel. Those are all titles that mean the same thing. And here's a fourth and final irony of this situation. Here we have an Israelite, Judas, whose name is derived from Judah, who is attempting to destroy the Savior that all of Israel was looking for the son of man. And so that is the traitor's kiss. Secondly, we see the fisherman's failure. Look at this, verse 49. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, that of course is the other disciples. Remember he had gathered them in the garden. He had stationed eight of them by the gate. He took his inner circle further into the garden and then he went a stone's throw further from them to pray. And so here we have all of the 12 now that Judas has come back. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I think that is a great question and probably the central question that we want to examine today. Shall we, Christians, strike with the sword? Now, earlier in this same chapter, Jesus had made it clear to the disciples that very soon he would not be with them physically. And they needed to prepare for that event. In fact, move your eyes up to verse 35 here in Luke 22. And this is right before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Scripture says, And he said to them, that is the disciples, When I sent you out without money and belt and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? You did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. Remember, at times during Jesus' ministry, he would send them out in pairs, groups, and then they would come back and, and report to him. And he told them at that time, don't take any money, don't take extra clothes. And he said, did you lack anything? And they said, no. And he said to them, but now 
That is, now that I'm leaving you, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, the disciples were like many of us. They were pretty thick sometimes. Jesus would speak to them about deeply spiritual matters and they could not get past the surface. And here I think is another example of that. Jesus was pleading with them. He's saying, look, I, I'm no longer gonna be with you every day. You can't depend upon me for every little thing as you once did. You, you're going to have to provide for your own living. That is, you got to have some money. And, and there were in those days as they traveled from city to city, robbers and burglars. And he says, look, if you don't have a sword, you, you better get one because I'm not going to be there to physically protect you all the time. And they took from that, that Jesus was about to lead an insurrection, an armed revolt. And so they said, look here, Lord, we've got two swords. He says, it is enough. Now, to lead an insurrection against the Romans, two swords is not enough. <laughs> so I think he was saying, that's enough of that kind of talk. I don't want to hear any, any more of that kind of talk. And yet here we are just an hour or so later, and they have taken that to the extreme, and they pull out one of those swords. And again, Luke is very gracious not to name names. The other gospels do. And we know it was Peter that pulled out this little sword, probably he kept in his sleeve, called a machaira, little dagger, and he swung it and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. We know his name from the other gospels, Malchus. And so what, what are we to take of this? Well, I take from it that this was an utter failure by Peter. He was a fisherman. That's why I call it a fisherman's failure. I, I believe he was telling them that they needed to prepare themselves for the time that he would not be with them physically. He was not calling them to an armed insurrection. And so they asked a question. This is not just Peter. All of them were asking apparently, shall we fight? Now we have to take all the gospel accounts into consideration here to get the full picture. We know that Jesus said, put up your sword, Peter. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. That's a saying we have in the English language, isn't it? it comes from this particular episode. Live by the sword. That means to be looking for a fight. Now, I am not one who believes, for the record, that the Bible prohibits Christians defending themselves. In fact, as a husband and father, I view it as part of my duty to be willing to defend my family against those who would seek to do them harm. However, and this is a big however, hear me, because I think this is the crux of the message today, Christians must never think that the way to advance the kingdom of God is through violence. Never. And Jesus is making that crystal clear. One of them struck. Uh, he was not responding to a command of Jesus. He was being impatient. Someone said, shall we fight? And before Jesus could say no, someone struck. You, you all know people like that. They're impetuous. Their motto in life is ready, fire, aim. Peter was like that. I, I think he struck because he was desperate to prove his bravery. Because just hours earlier, Jesus had predicted he would deny that he even knew Jesus three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. 
Peter was offended by that. And here he was trying to redeem his honor. Now, fortunately, because Peter was a fisherman and not a trained swordsman, he only wounded Malchus. And what does Jesus do? He did as he often did. He graciously healed the young man and restored his ear on the spot. Peter failed his test. Remember what Jesus had told him twice, just an hour earlier? Pray that you not be overwhelmed by temptation. That is, that you not be overcome by a trial or a testing. And this was a testing of their faith. Peter and the others failed to prepare for the test through prayer. And therefore, they failed the test. And friends, let me make the application here that all of you are thinking. All of life is a test, isn't it? Every day when we wake up, Scripture says we enter a spiritual war zone. And we are tested every day and multiple times a day. And sometimes when we fail, we think it's because at the moment we didn't do the right thing or say the right thing. The truth is, in many occasions, the reason we fail the test is that we fail to prepare through prayer. Many years ago, right out of college, I became a football coach and I was an assistant under a very seasoned coach and we had some very talented players on our team. And when we went to play our arch rival about the third game of the season in September, they beat us within an inch of our lives. It was a thorough drumming. I don't remember the score. I do remember it was 25 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. And I looked over to one of the other assistants and I said, I'm no math major, but that's 100 to nothing if we take that to four quarters. And they could have beaten us 100 to nothing had they chosen to, but they were merciful. But I never shall forget what the coach said to our players who thought they were ready, who thought this would be the year that we'll beat our rival. He looked those boys in the eye and he said, this game was lost in July, not in September. And they knew exactly what he meant. They wouldn't come to workouts. They didn't lift weights. They were out of shape when they showed up in the summer. They thought that they could lean on their talents and it would be enough. And in the third and fourth quarter, they were embarrassed. Why? Because they failed to prepare for the test. And Christian, listen very closely. Many times when we succumb to temptation, it's not because the temptation was too great. The Bible says God gives a way of escape. It's that we failed to prepare for the testing that he promised would surely come. And Peter's failure was not because that he didn't learn how to use that sword well enough. His failure was that he failed to spend time on his knees in prayer when Jesus told him to. Now there's a third point here, and that is the Savior's rebuke. The Savior's rebuke. Now none of us like to be rebuked. I don't. Peter didn't. But sometimes it's necessary. In fact, when Paul describes what the Bible does, the scriptures do for us, he wrote the young pastor Timothy and he said, all scripture is God breathed and it is profitable for certain things. It does some good things for us. And one of the things that is good for us that the Bible does at just the right time is it rebukes us. It points out our failures so that we can correct them. Verse 51, but Jesus responded and said, that is responded 
to their question, shall we fight? And responded more specifically to Peter's action of swinging the sword. But Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now, remember Jesus is in control. I said, none of this caught him by surprise. He knew the heart of Judas and he knew exactly what was gonna happen that night. That's why he was such in agony there in the garden. That's why he asked the father, if there's any other way that this cup pass from me. In fact, from this point on, this entire sequence of Jesus' agony and prayer all the way through his crucifixion, we know as the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. And this starts it here with his arrest. I said, this is a savior's rebuke, really. I should have had that in the plural form. These are the Savior's rebukes because he has a rebuke for the mob and he has a rebuke for his own disciples. Let's do it in reverse order. The, the first rebuke was, was for the chief priests and officers who were leading the mob. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? What had Jesus ever done for them to have to need this level of armament to take him? Nothing. Scripture talks about how a wicked man flees when no one is chasing. He fears when there's no need to fear. And these were, of course, wicked men. He says, I was with you daily in the temple. He, he's pointing out their hypocrisy. Now, he could have called, the Scripture says, legions of angels. He could have stopped this in, the track, in his tracks. But this is the reason that he's come. This is how sovereign our God is. He did not tempt these men to sin, yet in his sovereignty... He used their sinfulness to bring about salvation. All things work together for good for those that love him. Now, the other rebuke is for his inner circle. He said, stop, no more of this. No more of this. And friends, I take this to be our Lord's final word on the matter forever. No more of Christians using swords or guns to try to advance the kingdom of God. No means no. No more means no more absolutely. As far as I can tell in the scriptures, the disciples never again tried to use violence to fight their persecutors. And we know that 11 of the 12 died a violent martyr's death. None of them tried to raise an army they obeyed Jesus after this night. But if you're a student of history, you understand that this was the not the last time that those claiming to be Christians used violence. Probably the worst episode really is more than an episode. It's an entire period of history called the Crusades where those riding under the banner of the cross carried out some of the most violent atrocities the world has ever known. And even in the modern world, there are those who have tried to fight social ills with fire, with bombs. This is sanctity of human life Sunday. One of the greatest tragedies ever perpetuated on this country is Roe versus Wade. The fact that it is legal in this country to take the life of innocent lives 
and that ought to break our hearts. And this is a pro-life church. But at the same time, we know that the answer to fight abortion is not violence. It's prayer. Let me take it a step farther. We watched with horror just days ago when a mob, not unlike the one we see here in Luke 22, attacked our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Whatever your political views, I hope as a Christian, you recognize that some in that mob were wearing Jesus Saves t-shirts. Some were carrying large crosses. And friends, the acts they perpetuated ought to horrify every born-again believer regardless of your politics. That people claiming to represent Jesus would use violence to advance, they thought, the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say to Peter? Those that live by the sword will die by the sword. That is, if your impulse is to take care of yourself through violence, you will suffer violence. I take that to mean they will face justice. The scripture, friends, could not be clearer. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6. Because there's nothing new under the sun. There have always been people who misunderstood Jesus' teaching to tell us to take up arms, when in fact it tells us just the opposite. Ephesians 6.10, Paul is writing, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, if we put a period right there, and that was the end of the chapter, you can see how people could be confused about whether or not we're to fight with swords. But he goes on, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Underline that word heavenly. That adjective describes the realm in which a Christian's battle happens. It happens in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. And when you fight in the spiritual realm, you have different armor and you have different weapons. He says, because, therefore, because our battle is in the spiritual realm, here's what we're to do. Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, being belt, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Do you know the only offensive weapon in the arsenal of a Christian in spiritual warfare is the Bible? That's why Jesus says enough of that kind of talk, that we're going to advance the kingdom with literal swords. But here, verse 18, I think this is the crux. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view. Be alert with all perseverance and every request for the saints. That's what the disciples failed to do. That's why they failed the test when the mob came. That's when, why they acted impulsively and violently is because they failed to obey this command to be alert with all perseverance with prayer. Their failure 
was a failure to prepare. And so let me draw you close to tell you a little secret. This trial that we're going through right now, this multifaceted trial as Christians will not be the last one. And maybe so far you've done okay through this trial. Maybe you're here today and you say, Lord, I, I failed. I'm like Peter. How can we prepare for the next one? Number one is know the scriptures. Know the scriptures. I don't think there's anything that you can do to prepare your family and yourself like daily meditating on God's word. I, I, I've got this little Bible reading plan. I'm doing the McShane reading plan that Jack put together for us this year. And it has been a blessing. But it disciplines me to stay in the word every day. We need to feed upon the word every day. Scripture says they will know us by their love. Blessed are the peacemakers. We wouldn't know that were not for the scriptures. That's where we find how to handle these trials. And then, of course, in addition to the common means of grace like scriptures, we, we, we add prayer. And, and put a little star beside this. Why is prayer so important? Because God will never lead you to do something that's contrary to his word. I've heard people say, well, I feel the Lord leading me to do such and such. When clearly in scripture, it says, thou shalt not do such and such. And, and they'll justify it and they'll say, well, I just think this situation calls for a different approach. No, it doesn't. When you read in the scriptures, the Bible says, thou shalt not, that means you too. And when Jesus said, that is enough. When Jesus says, no more of this, that includes us. God will never lead you through the scripture to do something different or prayer or vice versa. They work together. Thirdly, here's how to prepare your heart for trials. Keep heaven in your heart and own your mind. When I get overwhelmed and depressed about what's going on in the world, it's when my eyes and my heart are distracted from eternity. Scripture says, looking to heaven, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus did that. The book of Hebrews said the reason Jesus was able to bear up under his passion that we're going to be studying for the next three months and his trials is for the joy set before him. He knew that on the other side of the whip and the crown of thorns and the spitting in his face, and the six mock and sham trials and the, the death on the cross and the cold grave was glory. And Christians, when, when we get so obsessed with the here and now and my rights, we'll find ourselves distracted from that which is eternal. So as you read the scriptures and as you pray, what that helps you to do is to keep heaven in your heart and on your mind. Don't be so invested here that if you lost everything, you'd be devastated. Lay up treasures in heaven. And then finally, I'd say this. May, may we learn the lessons from the failures of others. I'm, I'm not judging anybody's actions. Lord knows my own heart sometimes frightens me. And I'm so glad that Jesus is a, a God of redemption, isn't he? 
He could have easily given up on Peter that night when he failed and said, I can't use this guy. But we find later on him coming to Peter and restoring him to fellowship. Remember, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter went on to be a great leader in, in, in the church. So pray for one another. Be compassionate to one another. Think the best of one another. Pray for one another. Don't give up on one another. We're, we're going through a trial. And we'll go through others. But let's covenant together that we're going to prepare our hearts to meet that trial through constant staying in the scriptures, through constant prayer, and by reminding one another that heaven is close. Let's do that together now through prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I've been reminded all week of how little human beings change in 2,000 years. Technologies and kings and kingdoms come and go, but the basic condition of the human heart is that it's broken, that it's sinful, that it's in rebellion against you. And Father, even Christians are in a battle every day and we are tempted from time to time to take on earthly techniques and strategies. When we do, Lord, it, it shows that we fail to understand that our battle is in the heavenly or the eternal or the spiritual realm and not the physical one. And Father, our enemy is not a political party. It's not any organization. It's not any group of people. Father, our enemy is Satan. And many of those people are in his grasp. Scripture says he has blinded them to the truth. And Father, we as Christians have the only hope for our nation and for our world. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Father, help us not to get distracted. Help us not to fight fire with fire. Father, help us to fight this battle that was intended to be fought on our knees and with the Word of God. And so, Father, I pray for every Christian in this church that they will commit today to feeding themselves and their families upon the Word regularly and even daily in 2021. Father, that we will commit together to spend times in prayer, preparing our hearts for, for what lies ahead. And Lord, we don't know. We've been reminded today that nothing catches you by surprise, not even a mob. Thank you, Jesus, that you are sovereign and omniscient. Father, I pray you'd forgive us of any way we failed you in the last year of any word or speech or any Facebook post that was displeasing to you or brought shame on the church or on Christ. Father, we pledge with your help to do, do better in the year ahead. Father, help us to be gracious and forgiving with one another. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of second chances. Thank you that you restored one as prone to fail as Peter was. Thank you, Father, that uh, you forgive and you restore. Do that in some heart here today. We pray, Father, that our church would be unmistakably a lighthouse of truth in a world of darkness and lies. Help us to be discerning, to not only know truth from error, but 
good from best. Father, may our children grow up in that environment, understanding that no matter what happens in the world, that our true home is in heaven and our priorities are eternal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.